On April 14th, many in America and Europe have commemorated a hundred years from the great tragedy of the Titanic. Just four days into her trip, this luxurious ocean liner received warnings about the area through which the ship was sailing. These warnings were ignored. And the Titanic maintained her course for the New York Harbor. At 11.40 p.m., April 14, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg. She began to take on water at an alarming rate, and within three hours, the Titanic and 1,523 passengers were at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Only 705 people survived. The Titanic was the largest ship ever built at that time. It was known as the unsinkable ship. Since 1912, people have tried to figure out what happened to bring about the demise of a ship called Unsinkable. Most people would agree that the tragedy was a mixture of many things, including negligence, apathy, pride, and incompetence. In other words, the tragedy could have been avoided had all the proper steps been taken by the captain and crew of the Titanic. But since those steps were not taken, and since those warnings have not been heeded, a tragic loss of hundreds of lives occurred on the cold night of the Atlantic Ocean. Today, as we continue our study of 1 Timothy, we will see that shipwrecks happen not only out on the sea, but also on dry land. There's something even more tragic than the shipwreck of a fa famous ocean liner. It's a shipwreck of people's faiths. Today, as we continue our study of 1 Timothy, we will see that shipwrecks happen all the time. Most of us in this room will never be involved in a shipwreck at sea, However, the possibility exists that we might suffer a shipwreck in our faith, in our spiritual lives. In some ways, a spiritual shipwreck is far more devastating than a shipwreck on the high seas. Just like the crew on the Titanic received warning signs, God has provided with warnings, has provided us with warnings and instructions to follow so we would not fall in the, fall in the trap of those whom the Bible describes as shipwrecking their faith. I encourage you to open Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 12 all the way to verse 20. If you have your Bibles, uh, the ones that we provide in the chairs in front of you, you may find this passage on page 1028. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read from verse 12 to 20. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy 
because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymnaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our congregation this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His divine Spirit to help us understand this word. Lord Jesus, we do thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. We thank You that You revealed the Father to us, and we thank You that through You and through the Father's will and through the Holy Spirit, you have revealed to us your instructions, your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that we may not be the kind of people of whom at the end of the day will be said that they have shipwrecked their faith. We pray that your word will give us the warnings, the specific instructions we need to heed so that we may stay faithful to you until the end. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, friends, if last week we have talked about the positive side of guarding the faith. Today we will talk about what happens when people fail to do so. What is the result of rejecting the truth of God's Word? Whether by what we say or by what we do, by how we live. What is the result of rejecting the truth of God's Word? Whether by what we believe or by how we live. Paul says that unless such people are confronted and they return to the truth, the result is nothing less than a shipwreck of their faith. That's how Paul ends this first chapter of this letter, by a display of the tragedy that some so-called Christians may experience, namely, to shipwreck their faith. And Paul will even call out some names to convey the seriousness and the reality of such an experience. Now, there are many ways Paul could have talked about how people abandon the faith. He could have said, people who miss the mark. Or he could have said, people who are struggling. Or he could have said, people who are just not in a very good season in their lives. But that's not the way he describes this experience. 
He talks about it by giving us a picture of a shipwreck. He describes this picture, the seriousness of what's happening, by giving us a picture of total loss. It's a picture of Titanic, friends. Only that it's not about a physical ship. It's not about just one life. It is about the shipwreck of people's faiths. And friends, this happens all the time, even though it doesn't make it in the headlines. How do we realize how the rejecting of truth, rejecting to live by the truth, leads, leads some people to shipwreck their faith? How should we protect against such a tragedy? Are there safety mechanisms that can caution us against triggering such a tragedy upon us? And second, what should be done when such a tragedy has taken place in someone's life? Perhaps you know someone, a dear one, perhaps a family member, perhaps a close friend, or perhaps this morning you are here and your life is a mess. You're struggling with major doubts and you're wondering if you should just come out of the closet and just pretend and come out and say that all you've pretended is no longer true. Perhaps you are your mo this morning in a state of, of being on the verge of a shipwreck of a faith. What is there to be done? What can we do to ourselves and to others who are in this situation? Is there any rescue operation for those who have failed utterly? Well, the answer to both questions, all these questions that I've asked, is yes. Yes, the Bible gives us a number of safety mechanisms to protect ourselves against falling into such a tragedy before it's too late. The Bible has all kinds of instructions for us, if only we would heed them. And yes, the Bible tells us there, that there is a last attempt, a last rescue operation when such a tragedy has taken place. But as we will see, it's going to be counterintuitive. So let's look at these two points. It's two points in the sermon. Safety mechanisms against shipwrecking the faith. And finally, we will look at rescue operation, the last rescue operation to try to save the shipwreck. Let's look at the first point, safety mechanisms against shipwrecking the faith. Well, from the beginning of chapter 1, Paul has presented some of these safety mechanisms. And I'm just going to review what we talked about last week. Paul asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus to command false teachers to stop promoting their false teaching. So the first, first, first safety mechanism against shipwrecking the faith is confront false teaching. Confront it. It may be hard, but it's a way to ensure ourselves that we will not shipwreck our faith. A second mechanism Paul gave last week to Timothy, we saw, is... He, Paul encouraged Timothy not to be persuaded by the confidence of false teachers, but to examine the content of what they teach. In other words, the second safety mechanism is don't simply fall or don't simply go for how a message is presented, but examine the content. Don't be swayed, don't be persuaded just by the, the nice presentation of a speaker, but examine the content of what is being taught. Go home, examine the scriptures, and see if what I preach is according to the Bible. And if it's not, come and talk to me. 
You will do me a, say, a favor. You will do your, yourself a favor. You will do the church of God a favor. Third, Paul instructed Timothy how to view the law of God as being good when used appropriately. So many people think of the Old Testament and the, and the laws as unhelpful and not needed for us Christians. Paul says the law is good when used appropriately in light of the gospel of Christ. So we need to make sure that we have a balanced view between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People who claim that they are people of the New Testament, that's a big warning sign. Big, big warning sign. These are safety mechanisms. Well, today I would like to look at a fourth safety mechanism against shipwrecking the faith. Paul will give us his testimony. He will give us a report of true conversion. And this is what happens in verses 12 through 17. Now, some people find verses 12 through 17 as being unconnected to the overall theme of this chapter. What does is, what is Paul's testimony have to do with the command to guard against false teachers? What does Paul's testimony have to do with the command to fight the good fight? Well, as we will see in, in my view, I think what Paul is doing here, he's going to give three examples, three pictures, three illustrations, one of how to do it well and two of how to do it badly. Paul's testimony is a picture of what it means to follow the commands of Scripture, to follow the truth of God and to live out the truth of God. And then we will see what it means to disobey and reject that. But let's look at Paul's testimony. Look, look at what he emphasizes, and this is crucial. He starts off in verse 12 with a thanksgiving report. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's testimony starts with thanksgiving to God. He doesn't start with a, with a sense of being bored or refusing to give a testimony. You know, some people would say, I've been a Christian for 50 years. Why are you asking me to give, me, give, me, give you my testimony? Friends, when people give, give you an opportunity to talk about the grace of God in your life, why would you have a hard time about it? Why should we have any feelings in our heart except thanksgiving to God? If we're put off, by the opportunity to give a testimony? Or if we just don't feel comfortable about it? I really question and wonder in what way the grace of God has done a genuine work in your life. Paul begins his testimony with words of thanksgiving to God for what God has done in his life. Now, in verse 12, he begins with what Jesus has done in his life. Then, verse 13, Paul describes what he was prior to meeting Christ, and he mentions a few specific sins. And then, verse 14, Paul goes back to the list of things Christ has done for him to save him. Now, even though Paul mentions specific sins, notice that Paul speaks more about what Jesus has done in his life than what he used to be before. Friends, could you say... Briefly, the story of how God saved you in three verses. Could you say what he saved you from and what he saved you to? You may not remember all the details, but that's okay. Do you remember the contrast between how you used to be and how you're now? 
I want to encourage every member of our church, every one of you, if you're a member of the church or if you're a visitor, feel free to take this encouragement, but especially for our members, I want to encourage you to think about writing out your testimony. Think about the way, if you had three minutes with someone, think about the way you would talk about the grace of God in your life. I'm so encouraged that our youth are doing this this summer. Our, our Booney, our youth intern, is, is hammering to our youth the importance of writing out their testimony. And I've challenged Booney to say, Booney, you should actually ask the youth to challenge their parents to, make, to give their testimonies. And I'm challenging you now as a church. We need to be ready to give out a, an account of God's grace in our lives in three minutes. We need to be able to say what, how, what to say. And friends, if you have not thought through that, no matter how long ago it was that you have been converted, I, it doesn't matter. I want to encourage you, don't worry about the details so much as can you see a difference between the way you used to be and the way you're now. Talk about the grace of God in your life and be thankful. Not only, by the way, just on, on that note, I, if you're wondering how to do that, I wrote some guidelines of how to give your testimony. Uh, you may find a piece of paper on the slat wall right on this hallway. This is serious. Work through your testimony. Work through the grace of God in your life and how you would talk about it. Not only is Paul talking about what Christ did in his life, but Paul also included a statement of the gospel in his testimony. And by the way, that is, that is a a very encouraging principle. It's not just about giving your testimony and telling what God had done in your life, but include the kernel, include the core of the gospel in that testimony. And this is what Paul does in verse 15. Here's how he begins. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, this phrase here is a trustworthy saying. Paul will use this five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And this is the first time he does it. Apparently, this was a principle or a saying that was circulating around the first church, first century church. And they may have used it in their worship services. So Paul is bringing the gospel to Timothy. He's saying, this is a trustworthy saying. It's a wonderful summary of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Can you imagine, friends? Think about Christmas. Can you imagine putting on Christmas cards instead of putting uh, joy to the world or Jesus loves you to say this verse? Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst and then sign your name and send it to your friends. That's the message of Christmas. That is the message of Christmas. It's not just a message about God's love. It's a message about God's love to come down to be like us, to save us from our sins, and we have been those sinners. Do we dare to say that when we do living nativity, to call people to repent before God on Christmas? This is a message of the gospel. And we should be able to say it anytime, everywhere, and have the courage to do it. And look at Paul. He's not embarrassed to be counted among the sinners who needed Christ to save him. Friends, the gospel is good news. 
It's the news of God's salvation through Christ, but it does not affect us until we make it personal. Until we say, just like Paul, of whom I am the worst. Until we see ourselves as sinners from whom Christ died, we will not benefit from the gospel. Paul did not turn away to say that he was the worst of sinners. What a slap in the face uh, of self-esteem and having a positive view of oneself. And notice Paul is not saying, this is very important, Paul is not saying of whom I was the worst of sinners. Paul is not referring here simply to his prior, to his state prior to conversion. People would say, what is Paul saying here that he was the worst of sinners? Some say, well, he must have thought about the fact that he was a persecutor. But if that's what he's talking about, first of all, why is Paul saying, I am the worst of sinners? Second of all, there were a few other worse sinners than Paul, I think, if we were to think through comparison-wise. Think of Judah, who was with the Lord for three years, part of the twelve, and he betrayed the Lord. Yes, Paul persecuted the church, but at least he did not betray Jesus. Or think of Peter. After three years of being with the Lord, he denied Jesus three times. So what why is Paul thinking here about being the worst of sinners? What we see here is a conviction of sin so deeply ingrained in Paul that he could not conceive of anybody else as being worse. Some people come to faith. They realize they're sinners. But deep down, they think they're not as bad sinners as others. Deep down, they think, yeah, I, I could have figured it out on my own. Or, yeah, I, I lived up to God's standards pretty well as a teenager. There's some people who come to faith and still have a pretty good view of themselves in a way that's different than the way Paul sees himself. Friends, when the Holy Spirit does its job in us, he convicts us of sin. And the immediate result of that is that we give up all pretensions of our goodness. We give up patting ourselves on the back that we are not as bad as others. Southern Baptists, I'm speaking to us who think, and I've heard it said from the National Convention, that we Southern Baptists are the best people God has on this earth. And we need to repent of that. We should not be ashamed of recognizing our guilty status, our sinful nature before God at every moment. No matter how much the grace of God has been a part of us. Friends, have you caught yourself thinking about yourself deep down that you are not as bad as others? Honestly. As John Stott once said, this language that Paul is using here, this language which Paul uses here is a language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. This language which Paul uses here is a language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, when the Holy Spirit works in us, He will continue to remind us of our ongoing sinfulness in light of the gospel. 
And if our lives are guided by the Spirit, we will never graduate from a conviction of our deep sinfulness. So our testimony should include not only our life story, but the news about the gospel and how that gospel continues to convict us personally. And in verse 16, Paul will again go back to God's mercy for the second time, and he tells us that this testimony is so as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. This verse gives us the major clue that Paul gives us his testimony as an example of true conversion. Can you say the same things or similar things about your life, about your coming to Jesus, as Paul was able to say? Instead of being opposed to faith in Jesus, God's mercy manifested in Paul by giving him faith. Instead of hating Christians and being violent towards him, God's grace brought in Paul love for God's people. Instead of serving the agenda of the Jewish leaders and the, the Jewish law, God put Paul into his service by entrusting him with the gospel. That's what the true gospel does in us, dear friends. It changes us. And I want to speak and pause for a moment. I want to speak to those of us who are so used to the notion of conversion by thinking about a decision. Notice that in Paul's testimony, there's no sense, there's no vocabulary, no verbiage of saying, I decided to follow Jesus. Or I pray the sinner's prayer. The way Paul talks about the testimony and the gospel in his life is by pointing to the change of life that has been caused by the gospel. I want to encourage us, dear friends and members of Park Hills, so when we think about our testimonies, don't think just about the moment you decided to follow Jesus. And don't worry about if you, you remember that moment or not. That, that's, that's secondary. What matters now is whether or not there is a change in your life between the way you used to be and the way you are now. Conversion, dear friends, is not just a decision we make for Christ, but it's a change that God does in us, a change of heart. That's why throughout this testimony, Paul brags not about his decision, but about what God has done in his life. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you have heard this talk and it's like, okay, I don't have to make a decision, God does call you to come to him. God calls you to turn yourself in. And you may call that a decision. You may call that a walking down the aisle. I don't care what you call that. God calls you to turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus. But the beautiful part is that when you do that act, it's God who changes you. That's the point of the gospel. It's not you trying to change yourself. It's God changing you inside out. And as I was so encouraged by the testimony we heard last week from our brother, James Fallon, how he tried to change himself in so many experiences, so many ways, and nothing worked. It was when he turned himself into God that God started changing him inside out. That's what the gospel does. And I want, us to, I want us to think about our testimonies, not about decisionism, but think about our testimonies as the change that gospel does in our lives. Friends, could you give your testimony so richly and so succinctly as Paul did? I checked the NIV. It had 149 words from verse 12 to verse 17. 149 words. Can you do your testimony in 200 words? I'll give you 50 more, 51 more words. And include a statement of the gospel in that as well. And how the gospel is needed for our ongoing Christian life. Friends, here's why I hammer this out. 
Because one of the mechanisms that God gives us in protecting ourselves against shipwrecking the faith is to recount the testimony of God's work in our lives over and over and over again. To recount the changes that God has made in us and never losing a sense of our deep sinfulness before God. We guard ourselves and others by going back to the basics of where it all started, going back to the gospel. Now, having concluded this short presentation of Paul's testimony, Paul picks up the thoughts from the beginning of the chapter, encouraging Timothy to command against false teaching. However, he turns his attention to examples of people who have shipwrecked their faith. Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for people who did shipwreck their faith? The answer is yes. But the way that yes plays out is going to be incredibly counterintuitive. And I'll say the answer right now very briefly, very quickly. The way, the final rescue operation for those who have shipwrecked their faith is to put them out of the church. Is to do church discipline. Now, you may be here and, and, and wondering, hold on, this preacher, I know he's not from America and he's not mastering the English language very well, but a rescue operation and church discipline do not sound well together. If anything, a, a church discipline sounds like a dooming operation. And yet, this is what Paul does here. Let's work through this, the last three verses of this text. Look at verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. In verse 19, Paul tells us the manner in which, Paul, in which Timothy is to fight, by holding on to the faith and to a good conscience. Now, these two elements of faith and a good conscience were mentioned earlier as a source of biblical love in, chapter, in verse 5. But now, keeping faith and a good conscience seem to be essential for fighting a good fight. Now, this imagery of the Christian life as a fight is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. The Christian life, while it's often described as joy or peace or rest, it is never presented in the Bible as a vacation. We go on that we can just put our guards down and, and not worry about what comes our way. If anything, the Christian life is a fight we're called to fight. A fight against sin, a fight against false teaching, a fight against false faith. And the way Paul encouraged Timothy to fight this good fight was by two actions, by keeping the faith and a good conscience. Why these two elements? Because Paul will tell Timothy that in the Christian life, or the fight of the Christian life, will have casualties. The fight of the Christian life will have casualties. Not everyone who pretends to be a Christian will make it to the end. Not everyone who pretends to be a Christian will make it to the end. We must be very clear about this truth of Scripture. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian will remain a Christian. Some will shipwreck their faith. And that's why one of the signs of a genuine conversion is the perseverance of the faith. Keeping the faith is crucial. Christians who do not persevere in their faith are not Christians, are not true Christians. Friends, are you concerned or bothered by the fact that not all self-professed Christians will remain Christians? 
we must come to grips with the reality that some people will shipwreck their faith. Now, what is the cause behind this? Well, there are a number of causes in the Bible, but in this text, Paul gives us one major cause. Look at verse 19. Some have rejected these. Now, I like the ESV translation. I think it does a better job than the NIV, uh, which says some have rejected this. It refers to rejecting the good conscience. Some who have rejected the good conscience have shipwrecked their faith. It makes more sense. Some who have rejected good conscience have shipwrecked their faith. Uh, such people didn't just slip into sin, but they rejected, willfully, stubbornly persist in disobeying and acting against their conscience, even after being confronted and corrected. Now, what does it mean to reject a good conscience? First, what is a good conscience? If we, if, we know, if we want to know what it means to reject a good conscience, the question is, what is a good conscience? Well, there's at least two meanings, and all, both of them are true and have to be true. First of all, a, a good conscience, from a Christian perspective, is that conscience which has been cleansed by the weight of guilt before a holy God. This happens when we turn ourselves in to God, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. God cleanses us of the guilt of of sin. And he justifies us. He, may, he declares us right. So in our conscience, there's something that says we are declared right before God. That's one way. That's the first meaning of a good, clean conscience. But there's a second meaning, which is just as true and has to be kept also. A good conscience is a conscience that works well. A conscience that continues to convict us when we sin even after becoming a Christian. A conscience that continues to convict us when we act against God's word and when we step aside from following God's word. Friends, we have to be very careful about this second definition. We must be careful not concluding that a good conscience is a conscience that no longer convicts us. That is a very dangerous definition of a good conscience. A good conscience is not a conscience that no longer convicts us. Because there are people who, who do not have a good conscience, even though nothing convicts them anymore. The reason why nothing convicts them anymore is because they have silenced their conscience. They have acted against their conscience so much and so often, so repetitively, without worrying about it, that the voice of their conscience is no longer clear and sound no longer works according to God's word. When people act against their conscience time and again, they will end up silencing the conscience. So to reject a good conscience means to willfully and self-consciously be disobedient to God's word. And to reject will willingly to follow God's word puts into question the validity of our faith. When someone willingly, after being confronted, after being shown why such a a particular issue is a sin. They willingly, willfully, stubbornly persist in that sin. That puts into question the validity of their faith. John Stott said the following, If we disregard the voice of conscience, allowing sin to remain unconfessed and unforsaken, our faith will not long survive. Anybody whose conscience has been so manipulated as to be rendered insensitive is in a very dangerous condition 
wide open to the deceptions of the devil. And it's amazing. Paul says the same thing in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. It's amazing that those who have abandoned the faith have had their conscience damaged already. That's why John Calvin says a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. That's why how we deal with unrepentant sin in our lives is of tremendous importance, not just for our ethics and behavior, but for our faith. I have known people who once were apparently Christians, but because of their stubborn disobedience in their lives, they turned aside from the truth and ruined both their lives and their faith. I have seen ministers who have been caught into this disaster. Friend, I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for us. There might be some of you here this morning that have been fighting against your conscience. It's far hard for you to give in and to surrender to God. Or there might be some of you who have silenced your conscience a long time ago, and you no longer are no longer bothered by what the, God, the Word of God says. You find a way to explain everything away. Friend, I want to give you a life-saving warning. Stop trying to fight against your conscience. If you allow a particular sin, if you stop fighting against it, you if you are excusing it or hiding it, friend, be incredibly careful. Do not ignore God's warning signs before it's too late. Paul gives three concrete examples of people who have shipwrecked their faith because they have rejected a good conscience. He gives us the names of Hymnaeus and Alexander. What a sad thing to know that your name is written in the Bible as examples of people who have shipwrecked their faith. Why not keep their names private? Isn't it enough that they have shipwrecked their faith? Why, why make it worse and bring it up public? I mean, can you imagine if we put on our website names of people who shipwrecked their faith in our church? I mean, I mean, that would be horrible, right? Lawsuits? Defaming people's identity and character? Why is Paul putting their names in the Bible? Friends, some of us are more bothered by the fact that someone's sin is, becoming, is made public than by the fact that their faith has been shipwrecked. Paul wants to give us very clearly this warning that shipwrecking the faith is real. It happens to real people, to real names. And it is a warning so that those who are thinking about it, those who are still on the edge of playing with their conscience or, or not sure of how they want to think about their faith, that they may be warned before it's too late. So Paul is making their sin known. But more so, not only is Paul making their sin known, he says something that is incredibly difficult for us to get. He says, I have handed them over to Satan. Now, if you have not figured this out yet, this language of handing over to Satan is very severe. 
I, as, as I was thinking through this, me- through this message, I was wondering, is it not enough that some people shipwreck their faith? Why now also hand them over to Satan? Doesn't that sound like a, making it even worse for them? Friends, the act of handing over, first of all, is use of, jaw, of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. We're told that those who rebel against God, God will also hand them over to their sins. He lets them go deeper into the realm in which they have chosen for themselves. God does it. And then the phrase of handing over to Satan appears word for word again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul asks the church uh, to discipline this particular person who was living in open sin. Now the practice had the following meaning. Handing someone over to Satan had this, this meaning. It, the church was called to put unrepentant sinners out of the church, out of fellowship of God's people, into the realm controlled by Satan. So handing someone over to Satan is simply this. Because someone who professes to be a Christian continues to be stubbornly in their sin and refuses to repent and turn back to God, by their life, they're already showing that they're not part of the kingdom of God. Not about what they say, but what they do. They are already showing and living life as if they're not following God, but, but Satan. So handing someone over to Satan is make a public declaration that someone is no longer part of the kingdom of God, but part of the kingdom of Satan. It's a public display of what has happened in their hearts already. It's not the fact that the church can actually send some people to hell against their will. Not at all. It's simply to recognize that which those people have chosen already, not by what they say, but by what they do. That's what it is. It's not an act of final judgment. It is, however, a final attempt to rescue. And say, how? How is this a final attempt to rescue? Look at the rest of verse 20. Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, the purpose of handing them over to Satan is not to enact final judgment, but a remedial judgment. They're put out of the church in order to help them be restored. Now, some of us may be very puzzled by this uh, because this is a very counterintuitive biblical solution. Shouldn't they remain in the church so they may be corrected and restored? Well, Paul is not saying that such people should stop coming to church. They should continue to come and hear God's word. What should be stopped, however, is giving them the ongoing assurance that they are children of God. That needs to be taken away. In other words, when somebody is living out stubbornly and against God and refuses to repent of sin, Paul is saying that For such a person, there should be no more hope of thinking that they are safe in Jesus' arms, because they're not. Hand them over to the, the hand of Satan so they may be taught not to blaspheme. They're no longer to be considered God's people because they have rejected God's correction and have rejected a good conscience. By putting them out of the church, The church shows that a member's life is so displeasing to God 
that it separates him from God. And this separation is made evident by being separated from God's people and being delivered unto Satan. It is a physical manifestation of the reality of the deep result of sin in our lives when we continue to live it. Sin separates us from God, and for a believer to continue willingly and stubbornly to live in sin after being admonished and corrected time and again, it means he's not willing to follow God. Even though he claims to do so by his words, his life denies it. So public separation from fellowship of God's people is the last attempt to show this person how far away he or she is from God so he or she may repent before it's too late. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14 that breaking association with a person is done so they may be put to shame. In other words, so he or she may be ashamed of the evil he has done when he realizes that the people of God clearly see it as such. So putting someone out of the church, friends, is not a judgment. It's not a final judgment. It is the last attempt to awaken a person's attention, to remove their false assurance of salvation, and to call them to repent and return to the truth. So let's say if, if Park Hills did it, Let's say we have Joe, who's, who's, who, let's say we have a Hymnaeus or Alexander in our church, and we would carry out church discipline. That means that 100 people of this church, 100 people on planet Earth, think that Hymnaeus and Alexander are actually false pretenders of Christianity. That's what he means. And they should not take any comfort in being saved. And when members of this church meet up with Hymnaeus and Alexander for coffee, or when Hymnaeus and Alexander show up to men's breakfast, or come to our gatherings, we don't treat him as assuming that they're brothers. We treat him as assuming they need the gospel and they need to repent and turn to Jesus. We will continue to reach out to them, but not assuming that they're Christians, assuming that they need God's grace again in their lives. Such discipline, friends, is the most loving thing to do when nothing else worked. Challenging their assurance of salvation by removing their membership is both a remedial and a temporal act and it is a final rescue operation for those who have shipwrecked their faith, trying to exhort them to return from the, where they have fallen. Such people need to hear the gospel again. Friends, this is how Paul ends the first chapter of 1 Timothy. It's hard. It's hard. But he's telling us that some people have shipwrecked their faith, and there's something we can do about them. The need to guard the faith is so much more real because shipwrecking the faith is real. A few years ago, a father went to the pastors of the church and said to them, here's the situation. I think my son needs to be pursued by the pastors of the church as far as you can and then be excommunicated if he does not respond. The son was 19 year old. The church followed through with the church discipline. They tried to correct the brother, this, this young man. They tried to disciple him, to show him from the Bible that what he's doing is clearly against God's word, and yet he was professing to be a follower of Christ. After much time of trying to bring this person back, with no results, the church excommunicated this 19-year-old boy. The, night, the father said later, the night after that excommunication, I called him at 10 o'clock in the evening and said, Abraham, you knew what was coming. And the son said, that's what I expected you to do. 
that has integrity. I respect you for doing it. From then on, the son walked away from the Lord, trying to make a name for himself in disco bars as a guitarist, as a singer, and just doing anything and, but destroying himself. The prayer, parents were praying like crazy that he wouldn't get somebody pregnant or marry a wrong person or do something that would just damage his life. Four years later, he came back to the Lord. And the church had a beautiful, beautiful restoration service. He wept his eyes out in front of the church and was restored. That was church discipline at its best. This story is true, dear friends. The father in that story was a senior pastor of the church. His name was John Piper. Some of you have read his books. No wonder God has used him so greatly. Doing church discipline is hard. It's painful. Especially when those to whom you have to administrate it are close to you, are family members. But church discipline... God's final rescue operation for those who continue to live stubbornly against God. Why would we not do it? Yes, it's hard. But imagine, think about Titanic. When they tried to rescue those who survived the shipwreck, they only had a very limited number of boats. Only 750, 705 people. Friends, God has designed the church discipline to be God's final rescue operation before the day of judgment. It's his act of love to those who stay stubbornly in their sin and yet pretending to be Christians. Friends, I don't doubt that church discipline is hard, but it's God's rules, God's house. He designed it this way. Now, we may have to learn how to do it in a way that's loving and, and edifying and in a way that is indeed bringing glory to God and to his people and, and, and re restoring members. Park Hills Baptist Church, guard the faith by commending against false teaching, by exposing the schemes of false teachers, by understanding the appropriate use of the law in light of the gospel, by returning back to the basics and by putting out those who have shipwrecked their faith as their last loving attempt to try to restore them. The goal of this command is love that comes from a clean heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let us pray.